You are listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. Happy to welcome a returning guest this week, Mr. Ken Lane, who hosts the essential late-night radio broadcast Desert Oracle. His latest book, Desert Oracle Volume 1, Strange True Tales from the American Southwest, is out this week. Ken and I speak all the time, both on his show and otherwise, but it was especially fun to have him on record this go-around. He joined me to discuss, well, pretty much all of it. His early days in digital publishing, the Southern California underground of the 1980s, and the mystical lure of transcendence or death in the desert. Ken's paranormal and prophetic broadcast can be heard every Friday night on Z107.7 FM out of Joshua Tree, or you can hear them in your podcast app if you are out of range. Check out Desert Oracle on Patreon, and get with your local bookseller to get a copy of his great new book. Okay, we'll speak more on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of Transmissions. Ken, welcome back to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Uh, we've had you on the show before. I think a couple of years back, we talked about a muamua, that weird uh, interstellar object that uh, remains a mystery. Is that? Uh, I think that's. I think that's the case, at least. That's right. That's right. They they dropped out of the galaxy from above us and dropped in right over the sun. The first extrasolar object ever detected doesn't mean there hasn't been a lot of them and then it shot by earth and we only caught it some astronomers out on the big uh, observatory on the big island in hawaii saw it shooting off into the distance towards jupiter just like in the uh, arthur c clark book about rama yeah right right well you are the kind of person who, you know, makes note of these sorts of strange occurrences, keeps track of them for all of the rest of us. And uh, I acknowledged in the intro of this episode that, that you and I talk all the time, but I'm really excited to do so uh, on record uh, this time. Uh, most of the time, we're just we're just phone calling and just talking about whatever. But this this will be fun to to get in and. Uh, well, to kind of dive into the circumstances of your your great new book, Desert Oracle, Volume One, um, Strange True Tales from the American Southwest. I'm holding my copy in my hand right now, and uh, Ken, congrats! This is such a, a handsome looking book, man. What a what a beautiful little thing. Oh, thank you. We worked a long time on the binding and the cloth and the pressing of the letters into the cloth and the illustrations and everything we we wanted it to stand up to the stuff inside so i'm i'm happy with it as well 
Well, it's great. You've got beautiful photographs uh, that are kind of sprinkled throughout. You've got uh, these awesome little uh, characters. Uh, you know, we've got a, a, a looks like a a cowboy who is doing some sort of smoke signaling. Maybe uh, looks like a some sort of ET. Uh, some flying saucers, uh, wildlife. It's a really, it's it's a really incredible looking book, man. All your desert friends gather together. That's right. That's right. Well, as we get into things, Ken, I I wondered if we could actually talk a little bit about to start off, uh, the places you lived before you found yourself drawn out to the desert. You've had a, a long, long history of traveling all over the place and you always seem to find yourself in really interesting spots but but could you tell me a little bit about uh about where you grew up sure i grew up in in new orleans louisiana i was born and raised there and other than uh a few years when i was very young and barely remember it at the johnson space center when my parents worked for nasa I was in New Orleans the the whole time until we moved west, as so many people were still doing at that time. What what brought your your family out west? Economics, uh, the mm. the same the same forces that have been sort of tilting the country on its side and shaking kind of everything in the middle population wise to the the west coast especially so my dad grew up where you are in phoenix he and his whole extended family moved out there from eastern kentucky when he was young and he was there until he could get out and join the air force and then he had always dreamed of, of coming back, not to Phoenix, though, because as you know, living in Phoenix, it's the, the dream of, of many people who feel like they're stuck there to make it someday and get to go to California and be able to see the ocean. So for him, it was San Diego. You know, people in Phoenix love to get on the eight and go to Mission Bay. Yeah, that's that's right. They certainly they they certainly do. A few of us figured out ways to 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 stick around, but uh, but we do like to get out as often as possible as well. So uh, I I completely understand where he's coming from. You you said your you said your parents worked for for NASA. Uh, what was that? What was that like growing up? Uh, with 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 parents. Well, in that I was biz? too yeah. young to know too much about it. What I most remember is the excitement over the moonshot, uh, staying up late, watching the TV, all the neighbors running out and cheering and honking their horns because all of our neighbors also worked on the Apollo program. The whole neighborhood was built for the Apollo program. So I don't remember too much about it, except it was very rural behind our house because they just sort of cut right into Texas there, Kima, Texas, and everything was kind of freshly made for the thousands and thousands of workers who came in. Now, once we left New Orleans and got out to Southern California, I found myself pretty bored and to my my dad's dismay, 
I love the desert. He couldn't figure it out. He'd been trying to get out of it the whole time. And as soon as I yeah. got my driver's license, you know, I was in the car and going to national parks and national monuments and ghost towns and weird old historic sites and cemeteries and whatnot. Well, let's let's get into that a little bit. What was it, or what is it, rather, about the desert that speaks to you so? Have you been able to, I mean, I suppose uh, doing something like, uh, I don't know, launching a, a quarterly uh, magazine about the desert and, and doing a weekly late night radio show, I mean, at this point, you, you know, you brand yourself the voice of the desert, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you were younger and you felt that pull, you know, what was, what was that about? What did it, what did it feel like? And what was it about the desert that seemed to lure you there the way it has? Well, first the, the voice of the desert thing is kind of an accident. Uh, that was the slogan for the magazine because old newspapers used to have this kind of grand, description on the masthead beneath the name of the paper. So you'd right, have a right. paper like the Wilmington Democrat Independent or something, and underneath it would say, like, the voice of the tri-county region. So the idea was kind of a, a joke with the coyotes because coyotes are the voice of the desert. So I'd call the periodical desert oracle the voice of the desert with the little coyotes on the side and then as the radio thing started and it ended up being my physical voice doing the radio show and campfire stories and whatnot then that ended up i saw being applied to me i was like well that's all right because you can't do that yourself you have to wait sure. for other people to apply that you know, to you. So, um, yeah, it's like giving yourself a nickname. You can't, you can't give yourself a nickname. It has to be applied. Right. And, and you see, you see it happen now and then, like at some point, the, the Rolling Stones in the 1970s, their, their PR office decided to start calling them the world's greatest rock and roll band. And, you know, you can't do that. I mean, some, some people picked up on it for the, but for the most part, don't call yourself the world's greatest rock and roll man. Let somebody else do it. Sure, sure. So I think what crystallized what it was about the desert and the West and its culture and its strange and tortured history that told me I had to come back someday and, and do this stuff I'm doing now. It, it happened when I was living in a, a crowded, concrete, communist-era Panelock apartment building in, in Prague in Central Europe in the early 90s. And it was fun. There was a lot of things going on. You know, it was the end of history, which turned out right. to not be true. Don't call things the end of history unless you plan to go out, you know, because you will be shamed. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And I fell asleep one night late, you know, coming in from roaming around, drinking with people, and 
I found myself in this very, very deep, realistic, long dream. And I remembered it so well that I wrote it all down when I woke up. And it was this whole scene in the Mojave Desert. And there were things that I did in the course of this day that I did not fully understand at the time. For instance, I remember there was a, a recording studio in my house in the Mojave. And I had done uh, a lot of music work in the 1980s. And I, I did not want to do that anymore. And I'm thinking, now why would I have a recording studio in my house? What's that for? And of course, I'm talking to you from a recording studio in, in the Mojave that's uh, behind my kitchen here. So uh, I, ha I had a sense of where I was going to go, but I didn't know what I was going to do there. But there was something about the vast landscapes, the quiet, the ability, if you could figure it out, to kind of be on your own in this sparsely populated, immense land, and to have your work be part of where you live, which used to be very normal for humans until very recently, yeah. the last 200, 100 years, almost all of us didn't have a choice but to have our work be on the land where we lived. Yeah, and I mean, it seems that for a lot of folks that has returned this year, not everybody, but... uh you know, fair amount of folks. So, you know, in the, in the book, you talk about how really the greatest thing in life, and, and I think you use the term the most fun thing in life, is to have a purpose. So, you know, it sounds like this vision you had uh, indicated to you that maybe, you know, the, the place where you might find your purpose is the desert, but, but you didn't necessarily know uh, what it is that you were going to be doing out there. Uh, you've worked in, you know, media for a long time. You know, you've been a newspaper reporter. Uh, you know, you've uh, you've done all sorts of stuff. I've I looked up the bio on your website, man, just to just to do a little bit of uh, a little bit of reconnaissance. And it's like, man, Ken's been out here. Uh, it says here, you know, you worked uh, <laughs> at a at a at a venture capital backed witch cult and occult startup, witchcraft and occult startup. Sorry, which is a uh, pretty intense thing. You know, you've written for business journals, you've uh, recorded uh, music, you know, toured around, all that stuff. But when you found yourself drawn out to the desert, specifically to Joshua Tree, you know, did you go out there with the notion of starting the, the quarterly and, and the radio show, or did you get there and, and things sort of revealed themselves to you? How, how, did, how did that work? I would say more of the latter. The something that's hard to remember now, even for those of us who were aware of it at the time, is it was very difficult to work in the kind of stuff that you and I work in if you were way off in the middle of nowhere because there was no infrastructure. So... Mm -hmm. When I moved full-time to the Mojave in, I don't know, 13 or so years ago, 
it was specifically because it was finally broadband internet, which is such a banal reason to do anything. But I was working as a political journalist at the time, a political writer anyway, and I had to have that stuff or I could not work. So pretty much as soon as it was possible, I did it. And then the issue was, all right, well, I'm where I want to be. I'm outside for part of the day every day, exploring the desert, hiking, wandering around, visiting strange old sites, buildings, ruins, whatever the hell. But my work doesn't have anything to do with that. So I feel like I'm, you know, I'm like a cloven hoof. I'm, I'm, I'm split between where my soul is and what I've got to do to make a living. So luckily, media is always such an ongoing disaster that all you have <laughs> to do is do it for a little while and you're going to face a crisis in, in, in media. You know, the technology is going to change. Uh, vulture capitalists are going to buy the publication you work for and shut it down. And strip, replace strip you with it or yeah, something, right? Yeah. So it took about I don't know a half dozen years for things to shake out as they always do, and I found myself ready to go solo, so to speak. Did you like uh, covering politics? No, I hated it. Um. My theory on being a full-time politics writer is you cannot do it if you have strong morals and ethics because <laughs> right, you right. Know, you'll just be you'll just be heartbroken and and furious every day. Uh, so it I don't want to say I never appreciated any of it. But certainly when I was able to stop doing that for a living, I did not miss it. Sure, sure. Uh, you were part of the, the really web publishing when, it was, when that was a, a thing that, you know, was sort of uncharted territory. Uh, do you feel like, do you feel like the experiences that you had sort of working in this new sort of paradigm prepared you for launching the, the, I, I, it's, it's funny, right? Because obviously Desert Oracle, you know, you've got a website and all that stuff, but unlike most publications, you know, you don't read everything that is featured in the magazine on the website. You gotta, you gotta buy the, the publication to actually read the, the writing, the great writing that has been featured therein. You know, so, but, but I'm curious, you know, did you get a sense working in uh, early sort of web publishing that, that there was a certain amount of freedom to, to create something like this and, and through the tools of, of, you know, sort of modern technology, be able to connect to the people who, who might give a shit about something like this? Yeah, yeah, very much. The, you'll see people kind of, lamenting the end of the 
you know, the golden age of anything, the golden age of punk rock, the golden age of independent, weird-looking web publishing of the late 90s, etc. But all these things go through kind of normal life cycles. Um, but you do, if you're paying attention, you pick up things no matter what you do. And I guess the thing I picked up most was in the 1980s when I mostly was doing music, you really had to do everything yourself. And so it became this ethic. And there were a lot of magazines that were self-published at the time. And that feeling, I think, went into the early web. In fact, a lot of zine publishers had websites and some of the, the first websites that were content, you know, that wasn't just a dancing baby or whatever in the, the late 90s. And then as that spread and more people could have access to it, of course, it brought in money and professionalism, which generally kills any kind of art in anything. <laughs> right, right. But you learn this stuff. You know, I, I, learned, I learned HTML, which is the language for websites and all sorts of other things on the internet by copying it off other websites and changing, you know, the stuff. And it makes sense pretty quickly if you came from a newspaper and typesetting background because all, all the codes are the same. It's B right, for bold, right. I for italics, U for underline, etc. And one of the benefits of having everything so spread out now is that if you've done this stuff before, you can figure out how to put something together again by hiring out whatever, printers, uh, distributors, if you can find them. You, know, you can do your own marketing as far as websites and social media and everything. So you see this in all kinds of, of people who have created their own little publishing worlds whether online or printed or both in many cases, that you just, uh, you, you figure out how to fake everything and you figure out that faking things <laughs> is all anybody does anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, have you always felt like we've, we've, we've touched on some of the stuff you've done, you know, uh, from, from, you know, uh, co-owning a, a radio station, right? A country station. Where was that at? What was going on there? No, uh, oh, that was in Skopje, Mas the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I guess what I'm thinking about when I when I think about the sort of the trajectory of your life is 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 what you're talking about that that in the 1980s you you got you know acclimated to that DIY ethic and you've just applied it wherever you sort of go you know from from early web stuff to to desert oracle now where you're running this uh this little you know this little uh desert operation where you've got all this going on that DIY ethic feels like it's a like it's a real big part of what you do and sort of sort of baked into your your identity uh was that something that that you really did pick up through the sort of the punk scene of the 80s or the sort of uh 
At what point did, did you get interested in, I guess, what we would now call cowpunk? That's something that I think is a real underexplored uh, sort of <laughs> area of the... Uh, <laughs> Of the independent music scene, you know, I mean, was that was that where your stuff was that? Were you into like SST and punk and all that that stuff? And then uh, I was, what in, was it? I was into everything. I loved all kinds of music. Uh, my mm. my my parents were um, big music fans, and they grew up in in really golden eras of of music in in New Orleans and in the in the West. They both loved. Soul and rockabilly and country western and uh, the the particular mix of of musics that is called New Orleans music, whether you know, Irma Thomas, Fats Domino, all this stuff from the time. And so, uh, I neither of them played or anything. They were working class, and were not drawn into you know that part of it. But I did like what was going on in punk rock and new wave when I was a young teenager. And when I was old enough to drive and have my own bands and et cetera, it was a time when a lot of, and this is something that happens in American music, especially in cycles. It was a time when the roots of American music were very interesting to people. Um, yeah. Especially in Southern California where you had a, a punk rock scene that had fragmented into pretty much two camps. One was the ultra violence, Orange County meathead, skinhead, Nazis, etc. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're listening to this and you think like uh, uh, American thugs doing race riots is a is a new thing, it's not. I mean, it was right out of Huntington sure. Beach, you know, in 1981 or so. And the other side ended up being where the more interesting people went, the people who were the outcasts and the oddballs, and they were inclusive, not out of any superiority. They were inclusive because they had to be, because they were the outcasts. So it was... Um, yeah, because there's always going to be more outcasts than, you know, whatever the... Yeah, you you have to band together, you know, in order to create some sort of uh, a community that could withstand what it sounds like is obviously, you know, certain certainly an ideologically, uh, you know, upsetting and and you know revolting situation over on one side. But yeah, you had to band band together. So did that did that mean that you were hanging out with you know rockabilly people at the same exactly, time as like exactly. weird art punks and all that stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, and of course you mixed and there were things you went to together and and musicians especially would sort of drift around. But there was, there was a, a, a scene in my part of it, which was in Eastern San Diego County. Um, people who were my mentors and friends and and co-musicians and co-songwriters whatever were like 
the Beat Farmers, who came out in 83, I believe. Uh, Mojo Nixon, at the same time, he was the first lead guitar player in, in my main band during that time. Uh, and we had interactions with the whole scene in Southern California, the Blasters, Los Lobos. There was a rockabilly scene that kind of took part in in that world as well, like the Paladins out of North San Diego County, uh, the mm, Polecats, yeah. who I believe relocated from England. You had a mod scene. You had an incredible mod scene. I mean, it was just like, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Quadrophenia. Right, yeah. It was right there in a place that you probably would never expect it today. It was... Nor I remember being on the 101 because the, the Vespa scooter mods love the 101, which just wound right on the coast, and it was always foggy. It was like they were in Brighton or something. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I remember coming out of the off-the-record shop in Encinitas one night when they were closing because you'd hang out in record shops and drop off flyers, buy some records, meet people, and go outside and smoke, whatever. And seeing through this huge fog bank north of Encinitas, about a hundred little headlights that were all kind of moving together. You know, it was like a UFO coming in for a landing. And it was yeah. it was like a hundred Vespa scooters. It was all the mods from LA and San Diego, and uh they were they were traveling in this in this kind of uh, V formation down the 101. And it was, you know, one of those, those strange memories that just sticks with you. And later, only later in life, because when you're, when you're a kid, you often think, ah, everything good's happening somewhere else. I'm stuck here. The central place for a lot of these kind of musical revival and, uh, synthesis movements was right there in Southern California. And it was, yeah. uh, it, it was, it was great fun. You know, not, not many people ended up making a, a lifetime out of it, but at least for a couple of years, it was just a, it was just a beautiful way to live. And now a word from our sponsors. Creators. Are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers. Using it, you can develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to your exclusive community, premium content, and a chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. Sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and start building the steady income stream you deserve. And now, back to Transmissions. One of the the sort of calling cards of, of Desert Oracle is your your late night radio show, 
and uh, and I'm curious what it, who who were some of the broadcasters? You know, maybe the people you were listening to at this time when you're seeing mass waves of, of Vespa's crews around out of the fog. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, who, who were you, were, were, were you all, have you always been pretty drawn to the radio? Oh yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a golden age, you know, I keep saying golden age, but there, 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 there are times <laughs> yeah, yeah. in history that we really do look back on and usually don't realize it until years later, but then you look back and think, Wow, it, that that really was something that was going on there. So, to be a kid in the 1970s with New Orleans radio, all the DJs were these great personalities, and the music that you heard was this wonderful mix of uh, rock and pop and disco and a little bit of, you know, a little bit of new wave punk never really got on the radio, but you started getting these, these new wave influences coming in. And I just, I remember getting home from school and just turning on the local AM station and I'd leave it on until they called me for dinner. You know, it's just, uh, you know, call in for the contest. And, and then at, at the, at the same time, my parents, like a lot of early rock and roll listeners, they had, you know, lost lost the the path around the psychedelic era when I was just you know a little kid, and they'd gone over to country. So you'd go out with the the parents in the in the truck or whatever, and they'd have the the country station on. And it was also a fantastic era for country music. It was the outlaw country era with, you know, Waylon, Willie, and you had all the the classics of George Jones still making hits, Loretta Lynn, et cetera, Dolly Parton, uh, Merle Haggard was at a kind of commercial peak at the time. I think he was like the number one country entertainer of all in those years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I loved radio, and I did college radio with my buddy who played drums in in my band. He was the station director at SDSU, so I I did not go there, but I had a show. You know, he'd give me his show sometimes because it was like Saturday night. So somebody... You know, I had a date or something. I, I don't know if we we dated. Yeah, the, the, what did we do? Nobody dated. You just like uh, hooked up after the show, um, right? Yeah. But it was <laughs> it was what if we had midnight to four a.m. or something. And I I love doing late night radio. I love getting calls. And then when I go to sleep, I just slept to radio. You know, people forget that now that that was you'd have a radio alarm clock. Late at night in the 80s, there was a lot of strange late night radio on Larry King, later a CNN nightly interview personality. He would be on. He had a show on at night and he'd have all kinds of strange characters. And there was just this sense of what's going on at night? Who are all these people up in the middle of the night in New York, you know, or three hours later? Right. And then this kind of paranormal late night talk show thing started happening at, at about the same time. So I'd get these strange signals from Vegas now and then. 
these these people who were talking about underground alien bases and the Kennedy assassination and the Malcolm X assassination. You know, just this uh, early kind of paranoid conspiratorial talk. And the first I really got kind of sucked into that was a few years later in the late 80s when I was a police reporter for a, a daily newspaper up in Oceanside. And our publisher was this real character. It was an independently owned paper. Uh, when, I, when I went there, it was an afternoon tabloid style. So very kind of get in the gutter. Lots of crime coverage and scandals. and There's always something going on. Mafia. And there was a little girl who was abducted and disappeared. And somebody heard a psychic on this late night talk show. It was the the one that came before Art Bell's version of it. And this psychic was a, a, a real psychic who would consult with police departments. And he was sort of the guy, he was from, um, he was from the East Coast. And he was the guy who inspired the psychic and the, the Stephen King book, The Dead Zone. Oh, okay. You know, this yeah. kind of haunted character who did not choose this path, but he yeah, could it. not help it, you know? So he had he had helped solve a number of interesting cases, including, you know, serial killer victims buried under the bandstand in this little town park in New England, you know, very Stephen King stuff. So someone from Oceanside or someone familiar with the story from the area called and asked this psychic some questions and they were impressed enough that through some form of communication or another, they came to the publisher because the whole, the whole place, the whole city, the whole North County, they were outraged about this, this little girl disappeared out of her front yard with people all around. Nobody saw anything daytime yeah, yeah. And so this psychic, our publisher, hired him, and he came out and went around with a couple of the reporters for a while. And then when eventually, sadly, the remains of, of the girl were found years later, a couple of years later, seemed like forever. It was probably like 18 months, 24 months. They put me on it to go through the psychic's notes and try to like make sense of it. And so I started listening to these late shows coming out of Vegas that dealt with this stuff while I was working on it. And I just got, I just got addicted to that being awake in the middle of the night in the newsroom with the police scanner on and the weird late night AM radio. And you're typing into this strange green monitor. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that that was a big you know that that I think stuck in my mind and by the late 1990s Art Bell had become this national sensation he was on across the country and so when I was out driving in the desert and exploring and whatever always in the middle of the night it seemed he was always on and it yeah. just, you know, yeah. it's, it sort of made the desert highway the desert highway. 
Sure, sure. And I mean, obviously, Desert Oracle Radio, to some degree, you know, it it, it, it has it shares some some similarities with that. It's a di- it's a very different kind of show than than Coast to Coast. But I, 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 I have to imagine that Coast to Coast provided something like a sort of template for you in terms of understanding what a program could be uh, in that, you know, uh, it was a, a show for for maybe skeptics and believers alike. It was a little bit uh, when I listen back, you know, it's funny, Ken, I, I recently uh, came into possession of a, a whole bunch of tapes, uh, Art Bell tapes that uh, Collector had made, just, you know, cassettes. Uh, and I've been going through and listening to some of his, his episodes from actually sort of around like 99 to 2000 to 2001. And I listen back, and and I'm I'm struck by how um, I think one of the things that make makes Art Bell such an interesting character is the humor of of everything, you know, and the sort of uh, the sort of good natured quality that he would bring to his interviews. And and I think that you know, aside from subject matter, you know, the paranormal, the weird, all that stuff. I think that's something that you, you share is there's a dry, there's a dry sort of wry thing going on. So, I mean, did he feel like, you know, uh, the sort of person that when, when you heard Art Bell, you, you, you recognize that there was a way you could interact with all of this stuff. Let me, let me back up. Art Bell wasn't your introduction to the, to the strange, obviously. When did you start to get interested in, the occult and, uh, you know, let's say, uh, the potential, you know, existence of, of UFOs or anything like that. Was that a big part of your upbringing in the seventies as well? Yeah. The 1970s were, I think they were the weirdest time maybe in American history. Yeah. I mean, maybe now too, but I, but I agree. Uh, Yeah, I absolutely. You know, now it's, it's, it's too easy to break the spell now. Uh, now sure, I, sure. I have I have lots of colleagues, talented colleagues, much younger than I am, who I see on the the internet now. You know, they're they're investigative reporters on NBC or whatever sort of platform, and. It just sort of it sort of saddens my heart sometimes to see them online because they don't appear to be enjoying it, you know. Um, they, <laughs> yeah, sure, like, sure. You know, I can't believe there are conspiracy theories. It's like, honey, there have always been conspiracy theories. The United States was founded on conspiracy theories, and right. and and we're gonna go out that way, you know. Hang on, hang on, and enjoy <laughs> the view. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was harder to break the spell then, and things were so weird all the time that there was just this kind of haze of of bizarre uncanniness about day-to-day life. Like, I remember during the the Watergate hearings on, on TV when I was a little kid, my, my grandmother moved in with us after... Uh, uh, my grandfather died in in New Orleans and she'd be watching this and it was just you know it was surreal it was like the godfather so it, it was all these gangsters right talking live on TV yeah. and then it would end and the local news would start and it would start with like 
Two fishermen in Pascagoula have been abducted by giant lobster-clawed, fur-covered, eight-foot-tall robots who levitated. Is it Jesus Christ? <laughs> it never ends. Yeah, yeah. And my mother, God bless her, has always been kind of spooky. And so she'd keep me up late at night because she was too scared by herself when my my dad was working a late shift and make me watch the reruns of the twilight zone and alfred hitchcock presents and night gallery which was in prime time at the you know just these terrifyingly weird totally deadpan totally serious supernatural kind of things so that that was that was around and and people had their own weird experiences all the time. So my parents saw weird things. You know, my dad was a, a pilot and he didn't like to talk about it. He wasn't somebody you'd ever see at a UFO convention. But now and then you could get a little out of him. And it was just kind of par for the course. You know, people would drive two hours to go see Aunt Gertie or something out in Shreveport. And on the way, something weird would appear over over the highway and the engine would stop and they'd wake up a half hour later like what happened so it, yeah whatever yeah. was going on then it was intense and it was all the time you know there's a, a um a book called strange days i think uh, by a, a british journalist that's about england and the uk uh, and ireland as well because there was this weird overlap between the IRA and the UFO groups. Um, and things were just as weird over there. So I got to assume we were just passing through some, uh, some cosmic nut rays or something because it was, it was a very, very strange time all the time. And people just kind of went along with it. It didn't matter if you were Ronald Reagan or Shirley MacLaine, you know, you, you had your UFO encounters. Right, right. Had you had any of your own at that point? When you like, let, specifically when you're when you're like, you know, staying up late, you know, working on listening to the police scanner, and you're listening to Art Bell or whatever. I mean, at that point, had you already started to form your own ideas or thoughts about what any of this could mean, or what any of its significance was, or or was it a little hazier and less defined, and you just were interested in whatever this was? It was sort of a hazy childhood interest, I think. Yeah, right. That did not really start coming back uh, until, you know, this, if somebody's listening to this, they, which people are, of course, uh, they might be thinking, well, you know, J so. Jason has somebody on who has multiple personality disorder and... That may be true, but at the same time, I've found it very interesting to go through life doing things all the way and whatever it is you're doing, and when you burn out on it, doing something different. And I think that has included, honestly, my my beliefs and approach to things. Because when you're a new, when you're a cop reporter that's what they called it you're you yourself are not a cop but for some reason if you were a crime reporter 
or police beat, they'd call you a cop reporter. That was the beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's on cops. We're going to take him right. off cops and we're going to put him on the base. That was the Marine base. And uh, then we're going to take you off that. We're going to put you in county. That'd be county board of supervisors. You might go to courts. You might go to city hall. Uh, you might go to education, which was a graveyard. Don't don't send me to education. Yeah. Education is, you know, school board meetings. No. Um, it's important, of course. God bless our education reporters. But that, that was like punishment. You wanted this stuff right. with strange things going on. But it's a, it's a role you find yourself in where you need to be cynical because otherwise you'd be crying all the time. And you need to be skeptical because people lie to you from the moment you answer the first phone call of the day to the end of the night. So that's a different kind of uh, uh, a different kind of guys, you know, that. that, So it was later and really not until the early 2000s because of some personal experiences that I started looking back on that and thinking, is is that really just all a bunch of camp nonsense? I remember from being a kid and Rod Serling or, or is there something else here? Right, right. You know, when I came to visit you at the uh, the old Desert Oracle office, which uh, which I really loved visiting, uh, and uh, that was a cool little space. I know you're you're working at home now, so the office is gone. But well, then the office has moved to a a, secu- the, a secure compound, much more secure. I remember like the the trucks driving by, sort of like shaking the entire building. It seemed like. Uh, uh, at least the front door. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that was such a cool space. And I remember us sitting there uh, with light sort of pouring through the blinds, you know, that la- late, late afternoon thing. And we were talking a little bit about John A. Keel, you know, who I think you've referred to as the the Mark Twain of the paranormal, maybe, unless I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly, something like that. Yeah, no, that that's, uh, I would, I would go with that. He was kind of a journalist, humorist, writer on strange topics in America. When, when did you start getting into his stuff? Because then again, you know, uh, there again, we have somebody who, who, who really seems like such an interesting character that, that is able to balance this sort of, uh, skepticism with, I've been working my way through some Keel stuff. I'm I'm reading the Eighth Tower right now, and uh, he's not afraid to tell you exactly what he thinks is going on, you know. Um, but he's such an interesting guy, and and the stuff is funny, and he's a great writer, you know. So so I'm curious when when you started getting into to his stuff, and was it was it the Mothman prophecies that that you that first you know turned you on? It was not uh, the Earth. I was in northern Nevada in the early 2000s, and it was kind of midway between here, where I am in Joshua Tree today, and northern Nevada in the Great Basin Desert, that I had this kind of close-up situation with a a thing that came out of the, the sky on the highway. And I think that rattled me a little bit. I kind of laughed about it at first, but I went looking for stuff that I did not know about previously when I lived outside of Reno in, in those years. 
And I got into kind of a, I don't know, a sort of semi-dream-like state that lasted for a couple of years. And during this time, I had read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep mm-hmm. by Philip K. Dick. I, I saw the 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 now legendary San Diego cut of Blade Runner as a high school movie reviewer, you know, from the school newspaper. Now that's cool. Um, it's the reason why I am never satisfied watching that movie again, because there's stuff missing that has disappeared and it's not on any of the extra disc or director's cuts or whatever. It, it was, there was some, it's a hybrid between the original version and the version with the voiceover and all that. Right, right. But I, I had I had not gone any any deeper. I went in a you know I, I went in a, a different direction with my reading and stuff for a long time. So I was up here in northern Nevada. I did not know anybody. I had a lot of time on my hands, and I started reading a lot. And I came across John Keel, who I had never heard of before. And then he he wasn't well known in the 70s and he was mostly completely out of print in the 80s and 90s until that movie adaptation of the Mothman prophecies kind of brought him a little bit up into the yeah with a uh, cultural foam I guess with with Richard Gere I think I saw that I saw that one in the theaters I've I've never seen it but it it was late 90s I believe and that seems to have triggered at least uh republishing yeah. Mostly by uh, anomalous books of of some of his forgotten classics, lost classics. So I think what kind of steered me away from that stuff when I was uh, a newspaper reporter and is that all the people seem kind of nutty, you know? Um, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, God bless them. We need our we need our nuts. I wish we had more of them now, uh, especially of the less harmful kind. Yeah, but all this the stuff about the you know the space aliens from such and such planet came and impregnated me and all. I thought, well, we got a lot of wish fulfillment going on here. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I mean, I do remember when I was living in Prague that that evil cover of that communion paperback, uh, the Whit- Whitley Strieber book. Yeah, with that painting of that that face. I remember I did not like that being face up where I lived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people kept bringing it. You know, we always had friends showing up to visit, and got to go see Prague because there are a lot of Americans there. It's like, well, there were a lot of Americans in America too, but. That's how we are, you know, so they yeah, come yeah, out yeah. and there was no internet or anything. I mean, not that you could access in, in Prague. There was like ARPANET and CompuServe you could dial into for $8 a minute. And so paperbacks were, were the currency of the, of the realm. And people would come with their backpacks and they'd leave paperbacks. And this damn communion book showed up again and again. I never read it at the time. I just did not like that face. You know, it was, I was an adult. I should not have cared, but there was something about it that bothered me. But when I returned to the subject through John Keel, 
I thought, well, there's really a lot of stuff going on here. And at the same time, I read Peter Lavanda's books. Hmm. Now, he's he's a, a strange cat. Uh, he wrote a three-volume series called Sinister Forces. The first one of those is called, I believe, Sinister Forces, The Nine. And those books kind of threw me for a loop because it was then that I figured out that everything weird that happens is connected, and it's connected by strange, sometimes invisible threads. So... Early UFO sightings that involve things like Air Force planes crashing and the pilots dying because they were bringing back some some weird thing that was a hoax anyway. Right. That would end up involving people who would show up in the Kennedy assassination conspiracy a decade later, like Guy Bannister. And there were links between... MK Ultra, which I learned about around this time, and uh, CIA mind control programs, and Charles Manson. You know, you, all these things, all these weird things have their tendrils all around us, and we don't always see them. So, right, right. of course, like these days, of course the president and the president from a couple of terms ago were both involved with Jeffrey Epstein, you know? Of course. Sure. Everything weird and twisted and hidden and mafia involved and uh, conspiracies, the real stuff, it really is all connected. So I have great sympathy for, like, the QAnon people. Um, you Well, you have great sympathy for the idea that, that, that there are things at work that we don't that we don't know or that we're not, that are being obscured basically. I had, yeah, I have sympathy for them because the world on the surface doesn't make any sense. And everything has been binary politicized now. So you're going to end up one way or the other, unfortunately, you know, we'll, we'll have, we'll have free thinkers again there. I, I think it's generation Z personally. I think it's the ones who are, Sure. 13 to 16 right now, you know, watch out for them in like three years because they're they're a lot smarter than anybody in charge of anything is what I figured out. But my sympathy is with the fact that Max Weber, the sociologist, wrote, I don't know, a century ago about disenchantment. Disenchantment as a deliberate consequence of rationalism destroying the magic of daily life. Right, right. And we are deep in that right now. If you're, you know, so it's, again, as binary. So if you say in polite company around the boss or whatever, depending on who your boss is, of course, um, but say you're working for a dot-com or you're working for... One, you know, one, one of these handful of companies that gets all the money now, Amazon or something, and you mention something weird that you're interested in, people are going to frown on you. People are going to lock you out of the gang, you know? Sure. Uh, so those things end up all kind of sliding down to the other side where it's just crazy town all the time. So it's a, it's a consequence of, of, of where we are. But... 
coming out of that period of intense reading of weird stuff, I think permanently altered my approach to everything. And I became a like Washington political writer after that. And mm. so there was no place for any of that stuff. Although I'd try to sneak it into Wonkat whenever I could. I loved, I love real political conspiracies because they're real and they're usually not even hidden. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, that's the funny thing about them is that they also make a lot of sense that's you know so so often you know uh but i think that something that's interesting is that over the last couple of years as a regular listener of of desert oracle you've taken that invisible thread approach and i feel like you've you've sort of begun to uh create sort of a a a, a world for desert oracle um I don't mean to suggest at all that there's not, you know, a concrete rational basis for some of this stuff, but there's also this element of storytelling and artistic intent. And, uh, and I think generative sort of, uh, a generative sort of ideology in which you want to create a cool, interesting, enchanted landscape, you know, for the desert Oracle listener and reader. Um, Well, sure, sure. I think so much about how you've got, you know, you take some of Keel's stuff about the super spectrum, this idea of, you know, maybe uh, not necessarily another dimension, but but something, you know, something that is uh, a, a realm that's not 100% accessible to us. But, but that doesn't mean that it works that way in the reverse, you know, so maybe there's a way for these weird things to break into our world. And I feel like, over the last couple of years on Desert Oracle, you know, you've you've tied that to Philip K. Dick's two three seventy four experience, and you've uh, and you figured out ways to explore, you know, how you know Jacques Vallee or whatever is is also exploring similar things, and 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 you you find a way to kind of string all of this into. I don't want to. Well, I do want to call it myth, a, a mythology, um, and what most people think when they hear the term mythology is like made up stories, but that's not necessarily the way I view it. You know, mythology is of course a, uh, mythology is a set of, of, of metaphors and storytelling tools that allow us to expose deeper truths or truths that, you know, that resonate beyond, uh, merely this is what happened. You know, I saw a weird thing in the sky and that's the end of it. No, it's like, I saw a weird thing in the sky and that's a reminder that the sky is full of weird, unexplainable things, you know? And, and so a certain willingness to live in that sort of ambiguous state, I think is important for the kind of enchantment that, that you're talking about. Um, you know, do you feel like with this book and and with some of your other your other works, you know, do you feel like that is a part of what you're doing, which is creating a kind of lexicon of the weird that can be used to have conversations about, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, the environment. Uh, you you mentioned the Green New Deal. You talk about the Green New Deal in such a fascinating way, Ken, because you're talking about. Ken Lane's Green New Deal. Every time I hear you talking about it, is that a fair way to put it? It's a fair. Uh, it's a fair way to put it. Uh, I kind of sketched this out in a a piece for Gawker about eight years ago. Yeah. Um, as a in 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 that case, as a 
scheme to get all the veterans who'd come home from Afghanistan and Iraq, all these these terrible boondoggles that we sent these people to to, you know, fight our fight our oil wars and our influence wars, mm-hmm. um, to have this kind of vast national military project to build green energy and to do like the conservation core of the New Deal and fix up all the national and state parks and make campgrounds. And and this is going to happen. This is actually starting to really happen now. The permanent funding of the land and conservation, uh, the land and water conservation program out of the federal government that happened, I believe, earlier this year. We got the, the permanent funding. It had been a, a annual Thing like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to give money to national parks this year, maybe next year. So now it's permanent. So yeah. there, there, there are things in place that are, that are happening. Of course, it's not going to happen to the speed that the people who take this stuff seriously know it needs to move at. But we're people, you know, we, we put off, we, we put off everything. We procrastinate, you know, nobody came up with a, a, a better method for, lighting our homes at night until we almost killed all the whales. So we're, we're that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Creatures of necessity. We, to some yeah. Degree. And you know, mythology in the old form of the word. Now you say myth and people think that means a misunderstanding of something. That's not what a myth is. Mythology is what we call other people's religions. Right, right. We never call our own spiritual beliefs if we're, uh, you know, practicing Muslim or Christian or whatever the hell, Mormon. We don't call that mythology because we're supposed to believe it, even if we really don't. You know, we have one one of the one of the things about organized religion, I think, is objectively true that people have a hard time with is nobody really believes in any of these religions anymore. It's all performative. Huh? Yeah. That's a fascinating, I mean, there are, I mean, sure you'd have no trouble finding somebody who would argue deeply against it, but, but, uh, you know, to some degree, I think that's part of the performance. That's part of the, exactly, exactly. Which is, I guess, yeah, which is, I guess what I mean, because a mythology, you know, we, we can accept that uh, I mean, a mythology doesn't have to be a, an impediment, you know, and a, a mythology is a beautiful tool to have at your disposal, I guess is what I feel like I'm, I'm trying to, in a weird way, you know, you and I have made jokes and talked with each other about forming our own religions, but there's a real truth to it. That's what almost everybody does every single day, you know? Sure. And it is, it's at the foundation of art, the job of the artist, a job they rarely ask for, is to make a better version of the garbage world that they're born into. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's the, the job. You get up, you're crushed and oppressed and depressed by what's really there. And so you have to create a better version of it. You have to give it meaning and purpose. And if you succeed, 
you've made good art or you've made a convincing religion. They're really very much the same. I mean, uh, the, the, the classic pop culture version of that is Ziggy Stardust. When you when you when you started Desert Oracle, you know, did did you did you envision uh, your, uh, did you think of yourself as as an artist, you know, an artist working in 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 nonfiction, you know, or, uh, or you know, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And you have to you have to take it seriously. There's nothing pretentious about it, you know. Uh, uh, nobody would accuse a doctor of being pretentious because they try to do a good job as a doctor. That's their profession. That's what they're supposed to do. So I'm looking out of my studio right now. And while there's much that's beautiful, there's a beautiful blue sky. There's an enormous 50, 60 foot Joshua tree right outside here. There are ravens circling around, hassling the red tail hawk. There are mountains in view. I mean, there's lots that's beautiful about it, but I'm also looking over like 27 vehicles in various states of disrepair at, on my neighbor's property, not too far away. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the junk that's everywhere. And so I love the wilderness. I love the things that I can be within outside of the stuff that's tainted by daily life. And so to make a, I basically invented my own Joshua tree. That's much more interesting and mysterious and beautiful and with much more interesting characters in the actual place. And that's just something you have to do because day to day nobody can maintain that level of interesting and compelling oddness and beauty so it needs some some editing some redacting <laughs> i guess yeah yeah i find that i find that i find that really interesting um you know you 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 could say that for some people um Something like QAnon, you know, which I discussed with Colin Dickey uh, on this podcast, who you're, you know, quoted in his his great book, uh, The Unidentified. Oh, that's a great book. I, I love that one. I mean, there's been so many. We've talked about Eric Davis's book on this podcast too, who you had on, you know, Desert Oracle. So there's all sorts of cool, you know, connections and 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 you know, uh, you, you've helped introduce so many people to so many of these these ideas, but. You know, like when you think about something like QAnon, you get the sense that um, that some people are using something like QAnon as a way to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense. Uh, but you have to be careful what you edit out sometimes, right? And that's another big part of what I think about because they edit out a lot of parts that uh, are really necessary to understanding what's happening, you know? Uh so as an editor, you know, and as a person who is making, you know, an art project about existence, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting that that you, you know, what you choose to focus on so often throughout this book is, you know, uh, you, you choose to focus on people who are, one, willing to leave things alone. I think that's a big part of what, uh, 
of what Desert Oracle has come to represent for me personally is a reminder that, uh, you know, the artist doesn't have to be too active with the paintbrush sometimes. Sometimes the desert itself is, is plenty sufficient, you know? Uh, so, so I, I think about that though. And I, and I think that that's a, a big part of, of what you're doing is, uh, is focusing in on, you know, a life of purpose, a life of, uh, I would say less extraction. You know, you're not trying to extract value from the land. You're trying to illuminate the value there that's already inherent in it, you know? And I think that there's a, there's a lot of use for that sort of thing. So when I talk about how, you know, the Ken Lane version of the Green New Deal is this very, uh, uh, very holistic and I think, um, utopian sort of view of, of things and in a weird way that's what you've created with this book is a look at the desert as a sort of utopia albeit one where if you're not careful you will die extremely quickly you know is that a, is that a, is, that a, is that about what you would i mean at, at the risk of, of reducing things down you know does that feel like what this is to you to some degree well one person's utopia can be another person's hell, of course, but it is because one of the great benefits of the West and an accident of the United States government when they seized the Southwest from Mexico in the war that gave California primarily, that's what they wanted, the gold, right? The rest was, eh, we'll take it. It right. was surveyed, it was explored a little bit, but it was surveyed, certainly. And since at that time, it seemed unlikely and technologically unfeasible that you'd ever be able to have wide-scale agriculture across the whole arid Southwest, that it was best to keep it as government land. And that was primarily to keep the other world powers who yeah. had eyes on this part of the world from sort of slipping in just like we did and taking over, right? So the idea was let's keep Russia out because Russia was already reaching into Northern California and they already had Alaska and let's keep Mexico and let's also keep Napoleon. Remember, cause Napoleon was trying to get Mexico to take Texas and Arizona and New Mexico back. So you had all these world powers that were looking as always for weakness and things to exploit and so, like really nowhere else in America, you look at a public lands map. In the West, we have vast, vast expanses that you can drive across for hours or walk across for weeks or months. That's public land. Now, some of it's military bases. But the truth is, other than the kind of combat training areas, most military bases are buffer to keep other people from hearing, seeing, or slipping in to see what they're doing. Sure. Whether it's Edwards Air Force Base, Fort Irwin, uh, the Goldwater Range in Arizona, etc. You have National Forest, an early conservation idea. You got to keep the forest going so that you have clean water for the cities and you have managed timber for building. That was the idea of national forests. 
And then you have national parks, national monuments, and this this whole vast area is out there. And we tend in the modern world to think of it only in terms of environmental value, like, oh, this species can go from here to here through a wildlife corridor, which is important, or this vast desert, even though it doesn't look like the Amazon, is also a carbon sink, and it's very valuable for holding carbon. Mm-hmm. And this is for national security. But what that vast expanse is, is a place where if we need it, and this is at the heart of, of the Bundy stuff as well, if we need it, we can have places to be outlaws. Mm-hmm. If we need it, we can have places to be prophets, whether good or evil. We can have places to go mad, to create art, to lose ourselves, to literally lose ourselves and die. That is a wonderful freedom. Right. To be able right. to say, you know what? I've had enough. I'm going. And out you go, and they might never find you, you know? There's uh uh, if you're not if you're not carrying a personal tracking device, as we all seem to pay about two thousand dollars a year each to do now, you can disappear. Yeah, you can go into the wilderness. You can find God, the God, not necessarily of your choice, but one of them will find you. Right. Yeah, the wilderness is this. This. I mean, it's a. It's a. It's a literal space of the unknown you know and of possibility of of incredible possibility and i think that that's such a cool thing that you've been able to illuminate and you know do with this book this book is volume one i have to imagine you've got lots more stories you want to tell so do you think uh have you started working on volume two or uh does is that does that sound like hell right now i'm sure writing books is not easy well a book like this is uh project that you do over a number of years you don't just sit down and and start typing it so this book includes some of the longer pieces i enjoyed researching very much and spending a good chunk of my lives with these people who have often been gone a long time or with landscapes uh animals uh trends and and Western history from indigenous to modern. So some of these were in long gone back issues of, of desert Oracle, which Mm -hmm. you mentioned is not much of it is online. None of it's online. No articles or pieces from desert Oracle have, you know, I, I don't put them online. That was, that was kind of my lesson coming out of the end of the Gawker media era, which is, you know what, this isn't a good place for writing. Don't give it away. On, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Is it, you know, because cause a, a small barrier of entry of a couple dollars for a printed magazine, and it's better for you as a publisher and writer and creator, and it's much better for the person who gets it because it's in their hand. It's not just floating around. It's a artifact of a real time that they're in, and for that reason, when the issues run out, they're gone. And I don't have any plans to 
reprint them. I'm working on issue number 10 right now. So I imagine in another 10 issues or so, which is probably going to take me several years to do, I'll have a lot more stuff that I'd like to expand for uh, a book version or polish for a book version. I end up writing a lot of stuff for the radio show that I would like to go back and work on more and add some more detail and examples and I love I love having a paragraph with about 10 different jumping off points for reading and traveling exploration you know, just sort of like an offhand paragraph about that's not about the main subject and you look at it and they go, oh, I want to go there and I want to learn about this and what the hell is this and no I don't agree with the way this is I guess I got to look into that so when I have another batch like that, um, perhaps with a, a slightly different theme, I don't know, we'll have another book. But in the meantime, I'm doing the weekly radio show, which I write almost entirely um, other than interviews and things like that. So a lot of stuff there. The magazine, and hopefully when this goddamn pandemic finally ends, uh, I'll get to go back to doing the sort of events that I love doing, mostly these things that are uh, campfire stories, like a ranger at Yosemite or Death Valley or something at a fire, except it's me and the stories are all haunted. Right. <laughs> well, I've, everybody who is listening to this show should absolutely check out Desert Oracle Radio, which you do every week. Um, you can get it as a podcast. You can listen live late at night. You know, you've got these great haunting stories, and then you've got incredible soundscapes by Red, Blue, Black, Silver each week. So you get uh, a really interesting thing going. And uh, it, to me, Ken, it feels like something that uh, it, that feels like uh, its own little world, you know, Desert Oracle, uh, and the, the the way it sounds, and the way it feels, and the the sense of unease, and then awe, and occasionally transcendence that that cracks through. It's a it's a weird, idiosyncratic, deeply personal thing that you create each week, and uh, it's been really fun talking with you about it and digging into it and uh i don't know uh i appreciate you taking the time to, to do so man uh i appreciate it too jason i appreciate you being uh, a, a part of it as well because you've contributed both to the magazine and the radio show and that is one of the delights of doing it as a publisher and editor of having these, these desert oracle voices in different towns and states and regions of, of the Southwest, uh, yeah. uh, sort of, you know, a, ne a secret priesthood, uh, a desert night network. Yeah, the apostles of the, of the cacti to some degree. You know, you've got your, you know, you, you've, you've already created the religion, Ken, so all that's next is, a, is an order, an official order, you know, and then you're going to send your marching orders out and... Who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see when the when, when the uh, if if that call comes, 
Um, I, I guess I won't have anything really to say about it one way or the other because it'll it'll be one of those things you either have to do or not. Thanks for listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the program. Andrew Horton edits our audio. Artwork by Daryl Norson and Heavy Hymns. And Jonathan Mark Walls makes a video version of our show. Executive producer and main man, Justin Gage. For show notes, track lists, links to our guests, archives, and a whole lot more, visit Aquarium Drunkard. If you like the show, please share it. And if you want to take things a step further, check us out on Patreon. All right, we'll be back next week with another strange conversation for these strange times. Thanks for listening. Dusted's home is a dirty street. His time down here is almost complete. Here he lies.